This classic Encounters podcast is brought to you by Encounters North. To learn more about our podcast videos and projects and to support our work, please visit EncountersNorth.org. Hi, I'm Richard Nelson for Encounters, a program of observations, experiences, and reflections on the world around us. In 1852, Henry David Thoreau wrote in his journal, This afternoon in dells of the wood, and on the lee side of the woods where the wind has not disturbed it, the snow still lies on the trees as richly as I ever saw it. It was just moist enough to stick. The pitch pines wear at best. Their plumes hang down like the feathers of the ostrich or the tail of the cassowary, so purely white. I'm sorry that I cannot say snowy white, for in purity it is like nothing but itself. I am today wandering around in the midst of just exactly such a scene as Henry David Thoreau wrote, but in a very different place. I'm in the forest outside Fairbanks, Alaska, in the interior part of Alaska, on a day as snowy as it ever gets here in the interior. The snow is really coming down. But the flakes are very small, as they tend to be in this very, very dry climate here in the interior of Alaska. And in a place where the temperatures are fairly cold, it's just a little bit above zero today. It's quite a bright afternoon, bright in large measure because of this snow. Snow everywhere. When I look around me right now, I'm looking into a forest of birch trees, of white trunked birch trees. And when I look up, you know, birch trees have a very delicate, intricate filigree of branches. And I look up against the sky, everywhere I look is like some piece of magic that's been captured out of the universe and brought to rest here in this forest around me. White trunks, white snow everywhere. I'm walking on the edge of a small trail here, and I'm going to follow this trail where it turns up into a forest now of white spruce trees. So here you have much darker boughs and on every one of these boughs is a heavy load of snow. And every once in a while, as right this minute from one of the far trees way up high in the tree, the bough has bent down and released a cloud of snow. I won't be surprised if during this little conversation <laughs> I get whacked right on the head by one of those. and. The neck of my parka gets all filled up with snow. Well, what the heck is snow anyway? I've been around snow all my life, but I never really thought about it until recently and started to do a little research. You know, every snowflake is a six-sided ice crystal. Snow is ice. Or some snowflakes are conglomerations of ice crystals that are stuck to each other. It's a much more complicated structure than the stereotype, depending on each snow crystal's life history. A snow crystal, of course, can be that clean, perfect one that you're used to seeing in photographs of snow in the books, but it can also be covered with rime, and it's all sort of furry rime that it has picked up as the snowflake comes down through the clouds and acquires more moisture as a little bit of a cargo. Also, the shape of snow crystals 
depends especially on the temperature up in the sky where that snow crystal forms. So for example, at about 20 below zero, rather than being that snowflake shape that you're accustomed to, the snow comes down, each individual flake is a pencil-shaped hexagonal, that is six-sided little column, little miniature column, like a little pencil. From 10 below zero on up to zero, the snow comes down in flat, very plain hexagonal plates, probably about like a dinner plate, if you think of that sort of an image, a clear glass dinner plate, but with six sides. So it doesn't have all that extra ornate stuff. The fancy kinds of snowflakes happen at the temperatures that I'm in right now, from zero to about 20 degrees above. That's where you get these large, delicate, filigreed, six-pointed snow crystals. Actually, as I look at my dark blue parka sleeve right now, I can see those crystals clinging against the dark fabric, and I can make out all these beautiful little snow crystals on my jacket sleeve. Now, when you get warmer than that, from about 20 above to up near freezing, the snow comes down in a still different shape, little splinter-shaped needles. Now remember, I'm talking about the temperature at which the snowflakes formed. They may fall down into warmer and warmer temperatures than where they were formed, but it's that place where they were formed that helps to determine, in large measure, the shape of the snowflake or the snow crystal. At extremely cold temperatures, the last few days here in Fairbanks, it's been very cold, down to about 30 and 35 degrees below zero. And during those kinds of temperatures, you can actually have snow come right out of a perfectly clear sky. That's exactly what was happening here. How does that happen? Well, it's the extreme deep cold, literally ringing the humidity, the moisture out of the sky, and the moisture precipitates as these glittering snow crystals that flutter down and drift down through the air. It's another kind of magic. In the Koyukon Athabascan Indian language, the people who live here in the interior of Alaska, indigenous people, the word for that kind of snow coming out of a clear sky is kakotidona, which means cold's food, the food of the cold. Fascinating and beautiful little metaphor. Why does snow come down and accumulate so quickly as it's doing all around me now? I look across the floor of this forest. Oh, neat. There's a little red squirrel sitting right in the lower branch of a white spruce tree. Got himself all curled up there with his tail up over his head or her head and just perched on a little branch, oh, scampers down, turns around, scampers up with a spruce cone in its mouth, and it's working away at that spruce cone. And sitting on that lower branch of the tree, it's well sheltered from the snow. Red squirrels stay active all winter long. They run around a lot underneath the snow, and deep snow is kind of a friend to them because it helps them to be concealed from predators. Now this little squirrel here looks really contented on what must be a pretty warm day for a red squirrel in interior Alaska this time of year. All around me is this bright white snow as I'm trudging on through about 10 inches of snow, maybe six inches of base snow that's got a little bit of crunch to it. And then on top of that is this fresh falling snow that's coming down right now. This snow is very, very bright. I asked the question, why does snow fall so quickly? but melt away so slowly, and this brilliant whiteness is the answer. 
The reflection of snow, the reflectivity of this stuff, is called albedo in meteorological terminology. That means if you have sun shining on this bright snow, a lot of the heat from that is reflected right back up into the atmosphere. So rather than absorb the heat, snow sends it back out. And that's why snow melts so very slowly. It also tends to hold the warmth from coming out of the Earth. And those two things working together create a sort of self-sustaining and self-nurturing chill. And that's why snow helps to create and preserve cold. 10 inches, about what I've got around me right now, 10 inches of fresh, powdery, interior Alaska snow like this has approximately the same insulative quality as six inches of fiberglass insulation. In other words, this snow right here has an R value of about R18. It's very good warm stuff, this chilly snow. We so seldom think of it that way. Over the course of an average winter, Fairbanks accumulates about 65 inches of total snowfall. Anchorage has almost the same amount of snow as Fairbanks, about 70 inches in an average. Oh! <laughs> Remember I mentioned those those uh, clouds of snow that are tumbling down off the trees? One of them just landed right on my head. If I hadn't said anything about it, it probably wouldn't have happened. Okay, Anchorage, I mentioned about 70 inches of snow in an average winter. Juneau is a snowier place down there in southeast Alaska, averaging about 96 inches in a winter. Now, what do you think? would be the amount of snow in an average winter up in Barrow, way up in the, in the Arctic. You might think, oh, huge amounts of snow, but no, that's not true. It's a pretty dry climate up there. Barrow averages 29 inches of snow per year. If you want big snow, you gotta go down to the coast of Alaska where the storms come off the great ocean, breathing up moisture into the atmosphere, and then it hits the land and the snow gets wrung out of that wet air. Yakutat, on the Gulf of Alaska coast there measures about 190 inches of snow in an average winter. That's about 16 feet of snow. There are records of up to 30 inches of snow in a single day at Yakutat. But Yakutat is not the champion. The champion snow place in Alaska is Valdez. Averages just under 300 inches of snow per year. Valdez is the snowiest city in the United States. Now, if you think about just places, not cities, Thompson Pass, which is not far from Valdez, is the snowiest place in Alaska. It averages about 550 inches of snow a year. That's just under 46 feet of snow. A lot of snow there, but the record for one year at Thompson Pass, Alaska, 995 inches. That's about 81 feet of snow. The record for a single month in Thompson Pass, February of 1953, 16 feet of snow fell in that one place during one month. But that's not the world record for heavy snowfall. That is held by Mount Baker, Washington, 1,140 inches, 96 feet of snow. That's the heaviest snowfall recorded in a year anywhere on Earth. The snowiest towns in the lower 48 states, if you are a little bit of a statistics junkie, Blue Canyon, California, number one, 240 inches. That's pretty respectable. That's not very far off Valdez, actually. 
Number two, Marquette, Michigan, 141 inches. Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, number three with 117 and an average winter. Syracuse, New York, 115. And Caribou, Maine, number five, 111 inches average per winter in that town. Oh, I can hear a, a raven. I look up, I'm just getting, scooting out into an open spot and I can see a raven flying over as black as midnight, drifting through this snowy sky, drifts along. Another one follows, so maybe 50 yards behind it. Across they go over the top of the trees here and disappear over in the distance, and I can just barely hear their calls coming back to me from the, from the far side of the forest. The South Pole in Antarctica averages two inches of snow per year. It's almost always clear sky there on top of the great Antarctic ice cap. So very, very little snow in that place. Of course, it never melts. So over a few million years, you can accumulate a lot of snow and ice there. Alaska is a veritable kingdom of snow, of course, from fall through spring. For thousands of years, native Alaskan people have lived intimately with snow. They've studied snow. They've named many types of snow. They've learned to use snow. They've read the stories inscribed in snow, and they've celebrated snow and stories and song. They're among the world's greatest experts on the subject of snow. Now, I grew up in Wisconsin and thought I knew a little something about snow. That is, until I went to live with Inupak Eskimo people in the North Slope village of Wainwright, back when I was 23 years old. I went from my home in Wisconsin where I'd grown up to Barrow in the month of August. It was 90 degrees in southern Wisconsin when I left. And when I got to Barrow a few days later, it was snowing in August. It sent me careening into a deep depression to think, oh man, snowing in August. But you know, I eventually came to love everything about living with the omnipresent ice and snow in Arctic Alaska, that vast, flat tundra country covered with wind-blown, pavement-like snow. It's perfect for traveling on foot or by dog team or by snow machine. You don't need a trail. You can go anywhere over that immense snowdrift-covered terrain. Eskimo people, like the Inupiaq of northern Alaska, have a large vocabulary for snow, but there's, there's a certain mythology around it. Uh, I've read in different places, oh, Eskimo languages have 25 words for snow, or 50 words, or 75, or 100, or more words than that for snow. And the reality is, at that lower figure, there are, as far as I've been able to learn from speaking with uh, native Inupiaq speakers and linguists, about 25 words in the Inupiaq language for snow. That's pretty darn respectable, I have to say. Oh, there went, there came down another one of those, one of those outbursts of snow from up in the high boughs of the white spruce. This, this one barely missed me. It came down and hit the ground in a sort of a big puff, and then a big billow of snow spread out. And I'm sort of standing right on the edge of that billow of snow. Some examples of Inupiaq Eskimo words for snow. Apun is the word, the general word for snow. Kanik is the word for a snowflake, like the kinds that are accumulating on my jacket sleeves and my glove. Natikavik means blowing snow, the granular snow that's like ground drift that goes drifting along on top of the tundra. 
I remember somebody telling me once, I went into the village store in Wainwright one night and it was a blasting blizzard out there, just a ground blizzard, snow everywhere. You couldn't see 30 feet, dense, dense blowing snow in the blackness of an Arctic night. And a man said to me, you know, this windstorm, I think it's about to be over. It's the wind's gonna start to drop. And I said, well, how do you know that? He said, well, because it's snowing out there. And I said, well, how in the world can you tell it's snowing? There's snow everywhere. How do you know the difference between snow that's falling from the sky and snow that's blowing along? He said, well, come on outside a minute. We went outside and in the light outside the village store, he showed me as snowflakes and snow grains would accumulate on my glove. He said, look at your mitten here. Now you see those little round things like little bits of sand? That's the blowing snow there. And he said, now look at there, look at there. There's a whole bunch of little snowflakes on your glove. Those are the ones that are falling out of the sky. And he said, when it starts to snow after one of these heavy, heavy windstorms with clear sky up above, that means that the wind is probably going to drop. And sure enough, it did. Apikagun is another Inupiaq word. It means the first snow covering the ground in autumn. Nilyak is crystallized sugary snow that you find underneath the top surface snow. If I go here into this right off the side of my little trail here and I dig down under the snow, I can reach down here and I pick up the snow and sure enough, the bottom part, about the bottom inch or so, because the snow isn't all that deep here, only 10 inches or so, the bottom part is this very, very granular, round little ice crystals. That's nilyak in the Inupiaq language. It's very good for melting into water because it has a high water content. So you can put that in your teapot and you'll get a lot more water out of it than if you put the powdery snow on the top into your teapot. Silyak is snow with a hardened surface that makes it ideal for making a snow block house. That's in the Inupiaq language. I should tell you that the word for a snow house is apuyak, not igloo. Igloo is a general term in the Inupiaq language for house. Snow house, apuyak. Apichak, snowdrift. It also means a female polar bear with her cubs inside a hollowed snowdrift. Apichak. Pyaknak is the Inupiaq Eskimo word for snow that's been packed hard by wind, making it ideal for sled travel. Miteliak is snow that covers and conceals a hole in the ice, a very dangerous condition. No wonder there's a name for it. And masalak, here's one for the kids to remember. Masalak is that wonderful snow that packs easily, that's ideal for making snowballs. Remember that one, kids. Masalak, snowball snow. You can navigate by snowdrifts. Up in the Arctic, one of the skills that Inupiaq people have is to tell the kinds of drifts that are shaped by the cold prevailing northeasterly gales. They're long and kind of shallow and tapered, and they're different in shape from those that are made by the warmer southwesterly gales that are shorter and steeper. They have a very different look to them. And when you go across the tundra in the wintertime, there are millions of these drifts shaped by the northeasterly gales, and there are sometimes a lot of drifts that are shaped by the southwesterly winds. By using those things, you see you're traveling across a landscape that's covered by millions and millions of compass needles, and you can navigate by those things. A very important skill to have when you're in that part of the world. 
I remember an older Inupak man who lived near me talking about going out caribou hunting one day. I said, how can you go out caribou hunting? It's a total blizzard out there. You can hardly see your hand on the end of your arm out in front of you. He said, but this is good conditions for hunting for caribou. And off he went, pulling a sled by hand off onto the tundra. Came back a couple of hours later, and sure enough, he had a caribou on his sled. How did you do that? I asked him. He said, well, if you go just across the wind, you have the wind coming consistently from one side. It was from his right side. And you wait and you see little bits of vegetation, little bits of plant material blowing along the surface of the tundra. You turn and you follow that straight up wind. And if you're lucky, you'll come to the place where caribou are digging in the snow for something to eat and the little bits of plants are blowing downwind. They can't see you coming because the snow is so thick you can get very close to them under those kind of conditions. But I'll tell you what, you better know how to find your way home if you're going to do that. Oh, there goes another raven flying across this snow-filled sky. Such a beautiful thing and so, so black. The raven has a marvelous ability to live here in the far north through the winters. When I lived later with Koyukon Indian people in the villages of Huslia and Hughes up on the Kayakuk River in interior Alaska, just south of the uh, Brooks Range and the Arctic Circle, I started to learn about very different snow conditions, much like those that are around me today here in Fairbanks, not too far from the Koyukon people's homeland. Deep powder snow, three to six feet deep, accumulating by the middle of the winter. It only gets blown hard on the rivers and in the big open areas. Koyukon people are also experts at predicting snow and predicting the weather. One way that they do it, for example, is by watching for a gray moon dog, that ring around the moon. Koyukon people have a saying, Look, the moon pulls his parka ruff around his face. A beautiful metaphorical description of that moon dog. Means it's going to snow. Travel, of course, in this part of the world is limited to trails like the one I'm walking along, which is just a little trough through this deeper snow. Because the snow is so soft, you don't just go off anywhere the way you can on the tundra with that hard-packed snow everywhere. In very deep cold, snow changes its structure again, the snow that's laying on the surface. It becomes like sand. It squeals under the runners of your sled and under your boots. I remember how little the dogs cared for that stuff because the sled was so hard to pull and their feet got cold on that very, very deeply, deeply frozen snow. Deep snow in the winter, once it gets much deeper than it is now, will have a lot of effect on animals. For example, moose can be very easy to hunt, especially when there's a crust underneath there and it's hard for them to move around. Easy for people to hunt on snowshoes because a person can move so much easier than a moose can. Easy for wolves to hunt too if they can stay on top of that crusted snow. Ptarmigan do an interesting thing. They can fly down when the snow gets deep and it's powdery. Ptarmigan will fly down. They'll just dive bomb right down into the snow for the night, taking advantage of that insulative quality of snow. Rather than being up in the minus 40, 50, 60 degree air, they're down there in that snow taking advantage of relatively much warmer temperatures, not much below freezing down there under the snow. I remember going along with a uh, guy I was riding on the sled behind his snow machine 
Um, he was a Gwich'in man from Chalkitsik, a trapper, and we're going along at night and there's this halo of light from the light on his snow machine, and all of a sudden something bursts up out of the snow right next to him. He just reaches up an arm and grabs right out of the air a ptarmigan that had just exploded out of the snow, and he was so quick that he grabbed that ptarmigan right out of the air before it could get away, and that's what we had for dinner that night. Henry David Thoreau wrote, the swiftest step leaves yet a lasting trace. And all around me right now, I have those traces that Thoreau was mentioning. I'm gonna step off the trail here and go off a little ways into the quite a thick area of white spruce where the snow hasn't accumulated nearly so much because of the intercepting canopy of boughs overhead. And here are snowshoe hair tracks everywhere winding off. They like to follow very distinct definite trails, which is where Interior people like Koyukon people and Gwich'in people like to set their snares for snowshoe hares. Actually, this would be a great place right here because there's a well-worn little trough of snowshoe hare tracks running right in a little narrow spot between some bushes here. And that would be the perfect place to set your snare if you wanted to try to catch that snowshoe hare. And right here is another set of tracks, very, very sharp little pointed tracks. And those are the tracks of a red squirrel like the one I saw a few minutes ago. The snow does this wonderful thing of telling you what's been around, and here is a really serious bonus. Here is a set of very, very fresh moose tracks. The track itself, I lean down here, I put my hand down next to it. It's quite a bit longer than the palm of my hand, and this track looks to be very, very fresh because hardly any snow has accumulated in it, and I'm looking around right now, although I'm sure my talking would have frightened that moose away. Now, you can also judge the age of tracks in cold weather, 0, minus 10, minus 20, 30. You can stick your finger down into a track, like a moose track or a human track or anything, and if it's kind of turned crispy in the bottom, if it's hardened up, the crystalline structure of the snow, whoa, there, there went another one of those big cloud bursts of snow. It actually broke a branch and came, that branch came down just behind me from a birch tree. If you stick your hand in there, you feel that little hardness at the edges of the track. That means you're touching an older animal track that has had enough time to kind of freeze up in there. If you feel it down in there, and you can even do it going along on a dog team or a snow machine, just drag your foot through in deep snow, three, four foot snow. Drag your foot. If you sort of feel thump, thump as you go through both sides of the track, that means it's not a really fresh one. If your leg just drifts through there without any resistance at all, it's probably a very fresh track. There's been no hard of that snow. In the Koyukon Athabascan Indian language, there are lots of words for snow too, about as many probably as in the Inupiaq language. Tsit means snow. Ashyat, falling snow, like this delicious stuff coming down all around me right now. Tsit kudla, powder snow. Nudzach, slushy snow. Dona means wind's food. That's heavy drifting snow. Nahutlten, Snow that has thawed and then frozen again. And one of my favorite words in any language I know of is duchnuich. That word means the snow clumps that are pillowed on the boughs of a spruce tree or pillowed on these, uh, these branches of the birches and alders around me. Duchnuich. That duchnuich snow is the sort that Koyukon people used to melt for water for their young men because it's so light 
by drinking water made from this light snow, they themselves would become light-footed and fast. There's a beautiful riddle in the Koyukon language. Wait, I see something. The riddle is introduced, and here's the riddle. We are sitting all puffed up across from each other, wearing coats of white mountain sheepskin. What's the answer? Duchnuich, the clumps of white snow on the branches, like coats of white mountain sheepskin. Well, snow, snow, snow. It's the essence of our winter world. The entire northern hemisphere shines with a brilliant white face throughout the winter months. Snow, of course, profoundly affects our lives. It creates plenty of pain and hardship. It isn't all beauty like I'm celebrating here today in the woods outside of Fairbanks, Alaska. Sometimes it causes hundreds of deaths in a single blizzard in the United States from car accidents and overexertion and avalanches. It also brings us, though, amazing pleasures. Snowboarding, skiing, ski-juring, dog-mushing, snowmobiling, sledding, tubing or just walking around through this magically transformed world cloaked in billows of crystal snow. Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do right now. I'm going to lay down here on the snow and I'm going to make me a snow angel. For Encounters, I'm Richard Nelson. Thanks so much for listening. Why don't you run outside and make a snow angel in your yard too. See you later. Encounters is a production of Raven Radio, KCAW in Sitka, Alaska. The writer, host, and executive producer is Richard Nelson. Ken Fate is the engineer and producer. Theme music by Outback. Funding for Encounters provided by the Skaggs Foundation, the Scott A. Nathan Charitable Trust, Martha Wyckoff and Jerry Tone, the Alaska Conservation Foundation, and the Leedy Foundation.